Hi friends, I'm Tanya Luna, psychology researcher and educator. And I'm Brian Luna, and I still check under the bed every night before I go to sleep. And you're listening to Talk Psych to Me. A show where we take research out of the lab and into the street. Let's get into it. Okay, so today we have a very special guest on our show, researcher and author of the books Innovation as Usual and What's Your Problem, which just came out and it's spectacular. Please welcome Thomas Vilvilsberg. I have to admire your capacity to pronounce Danish surnames. On a scale of 0% to 100% by American standards. <laughs> so, I'm so sorry. Probably 20%. 20%? <laughs> that's not bad. Wait, that's is, not bad. Which is 10% higher than anybody else. Uh, and 15% higher than anybody signing this in Starbucks. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> so, Thomas, maybe if you could get us collectively up a few percentage points, would you do us the honor of introducing yourself? Well, the Danish pronunciation would be Thomas Wilsbo. And uh, that's kind of like imagining you're the Swedish chef from Muppet Show and then realizing you have no chance of getting it right anyway. Uh, so I, in English, I normally say Thomas Waddell Waddell Sport. And Brian, how do you say your name in English? The Baron Von Luna. <laughs> Brian is not a Baron, but from what we understand... Yeah, do you have any ins, like how I can get to be a Baron? What do uh, I have you can't, but Tanya technically could. If you marry a Baron, then you become a Baroness. I think Thomas just proposed to me. Yeah, and seriously, and he didn't answer my question at all. Like He was like, I don't know how you can, but Tanya, if she trades up. Thomas, I like to keep my options open. Thank you. And thank you for introducing really a problem into our relationship. Because today, we're going to be talking about the psychology of problem solving. I'm nice. excited about this topic because yeah. we have an actual problem-solving expert, innovation expert on the show. He wrote, I would say, Thomas, wrote would you say book. you wrote the book on problem-solving? <laughs> I think you could actually say that, and specifically uh, problem-framing, the challenge of figuring out what problems to solve. There isn't really a, a one-core book out there yet, hence why I wrote this one. So you could say I wrote the book on problem-solving. Awesome. And I love actually getting started there because mm -hmm. one of the things that I find really interesting about problem-solving is that we spend so much time solving the wrong problems. Would you talk us through that, your insights and your findings on the topic of problem discovery? How do you even know what your problem is? That's really the skill we have to get better at because when, when you look at problem solving, there's two parts to it. The part we're good at is the solving. Most people are decent problem solvers. The part we are bad at is to figure out what problems to solve in the first place. And specifically, I talk about this skill called problem reframing or reframing in short. Maybe before we dive into some of the research, Brian, what's a problem that you're currently trying to solve? I feel like that's a loaded question that you think I have a problem. <laughs> so why don't you tell me my problem is, Tanya? Uh, no, one of the problems I have right now is that I'm too good at most things. And this is why we need Thomas on the show to help us clarify, <laughs> to help us clarify. what our actual problem Now, is. honestly, there are days when I have an issue that comes up again and again, and I think it's because I'm not recognizing what the actual problem is, whether it's frustration with my career or frustration with other things. It might not be that. It might yeah. be something else. And what I'm learning through therapy is to ask yourself different questions to kind of get to maybe a different path. It's kind of like, like instead of saying, why can't I get through this door? Asking, why do I want to get into this door? Yeah. What's on the other side that I need so badly? Or yeah. do I need to lose weight to get through the door? 
Like, how much weight? <laughs> this is a very narrow door. Thomas, what problems are you currently trying to solve? Or do you have no problems because you're the problem master? Am I credible if I have problems and then I write a book about problem solving? Or maybe you're just <laughs> so good at it that you've already gotten to problems that most of us haven't even started contemplating. But that's like if I was a mechanic writing a book about oil change and I'm dripping oil everywhere. Like, would I, would I, would I trust that's, that book? I'm just kidding, Thomas. You, that's you, you exactly the it. metaphor I would have chosen. <laughs> I use that metaphor all the time of the, of the oil dripping mechanic. <laughs> I, I think what's interesting with thinking about problems is that we all have tons of problems in our lives, but sometimes we tend to pick the uninteresting ones to discuss. An interesting problem is one that hurts a little bit, that has like, there's something about yourself that you don't quite like. And for me, for instance, why do I struggle with, going out and being at a networking thing. Is it because there's a pandemic, Thomas? Yes. (laughs) Wait, there's a pandemic? (laughs) Outside the pandemic times, when I go out and socialize with some cases, I find myself play acting the extrovert in a comfortable way. At other times, I feel very socially awkward. And that's not something I like about myself. But that's an interesting problem to kind of try to think differently about. So what are yours? And we only have an hour, so keep (laughs) Burn! My problems, oh gosh, it's a range. Everything from how do I get my dog to stop barking at squirrels to how do I make sure that my business survives the recession? One of those problems sound a little bit more serious than the other. (laughs) I know, squirrels are the worst. (laughs) How about you, Brian? I think kind of like uh, confusing purpose with direction, getting really down on myself and I feel like I have no purpose. So good luck, Thomas. (laughs) Interesting. waiting. Uh So you have some options here, Thomas. Let's get into problem framing and reframing. What is that, first of all? The way I like to introduce it is by sharing a short example. It's called the slow elevator problem. The idea is you imagine you're the owner of an office building and that the tenants in the building are complaining about the speed of the elevator. This is an example of a problem that has been framed for you. They come to you and say, the elevator is slow. That's the problem. And if you fall into that framing, well, then you start brainstorming on how do we make it faster. The point of reframing is to go in and resist that urge to jump into solution mode, even for a few minutes, and instead try to see if there's a different way of thinking about the problem. The classical example here is, well, what do landlords often do when they receive complaints about a slow elevator? They put up mirrors in the hallway because then people, of course, arrive, they're busy, they look in the mirror, they fall in love, they forget time, and they're happy. Um, that's, that's like, you know, psychology 101, people like mirrors. That's a memorable instance of the core idea that sometimes you can achieve better or faster results uh, or make headway on a difficult problem by finding a different perspective on the problem. It kind of goes back to Brian, what you were saying about asking different questions. If you keep asking, how do I make the elevator go faster? The answer is never going to be put a mirror in the lobby, no, no. <laughs> right? You have to figure out what's the right question to ask. This also reminds me of a concept in psychology called functional fixedness, which is the tendency for us, especially as we get older or especially as we become more experienced or skilled at something, we tend to see things in a very fixed way. I was a research assistant on a study done by Joaquin Roca on the topic of group creativity. And one of the classic experiments that is run to try to see if you can get people to break out of functional fixedness is to come up with unusual uses for a brick. Notorious test, yeah. What are some ways you could use a brick? Awesome after squirrels. To <laughs> <laughs> My problem is solved. 
Um, what do you got, Brian? Lina? Sell bricks. Sell bricks. So your, your business is solved too. Thomas, to solve your introvert problem, you could create a brick community. And even simpler, you could just go go in uh, into a crowd with a brick in your hand and people go, why are you carrying a brick? Yeah, problem oh, solved. They start talking to you. You've solved your issue. And then Brian, for your question of purpose, you could... Hit yourself in the head with a brick. There you go. Kind of a a quick reset. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. (laughs) Thomas, you had this really beautiful story that I've heard you share about shelter dogs. It's uh, one of the most powerful real-world examples I've seen. We've just for decades had this problem that there are more dogs in shelters than there are people adopting from shelters. Lots of people have tried to help that by advertising and so on, but the problem has just persisted. And so I ran into this amazing woman called Lori Weiss, who had found a very different way of going about it. One industry data point is that 30% of the dogs that are put in shelters are put there by their own owners, their own family. Mm. And when you think about that number, most people in the industry had this reaction of like, they're bad people. How heartless do you have to be to take a beloved dog and kind of just hand it over to a shelter where you know it may not make it out of the shelter? Now, Lori was interesting because she worked with some of these people and she knew or felt that didn't quite fit her experience. So she ran a small experiment. She set one of her people to stand at the shelter whenever somebody came to hand over their dog. And she would simply ask, would you prefer to keep your pet if you could today? And what she realized was 75% of the people said yes to them. Often they could then help them do that by drawing on the resources of the shelter. And what she realized was when people hand over their pets to a shelter, that's not typically a bad person problem. That's a financial problem. Most of these families loved their dogs, but they were also very poor. And so when they ran into a situation where they had to move into a new building and the new landlord comes to them and say, if you want the dog here, it's going to cost you $150 security deposit. And they don't have a way to get that money. And mm-hmm. so their last option was to go in and hand it over to the shelter. And that realization was wonderful for them because if you want a dog in a shelter, there's actually a, a fairly high overhead cost. So it made financial sense for them often to just go in and say, well, you know what? We can put down that deposit. And that allowed Lori, well, two things. First of all, it, it made her resources more impactful. They could lower their cost of helping a dog from $85 per dog to down to $60 per dog. But more significantly, she found a completely new way of dealing with this issue. She didn't solve the problem of how do we increase adoptions. She solved the problem of keeping the dogs out of the shelter space by keeping them with their first family. And that, that to me is such a powerful instance of solving a different problem. I used to do research on cognitive reappraisal, which is Mm. often the term used for reframing in psychology. What we used to do is put people in this small dark room and monitor their brainwave activity in one of two conditions. We used to show them really emotionally triggering images. So it might be like a really scary dog barking at you. And in one version, they just saw the images. In another version, before they saw an image, they would hear my voice saying something like, this dog is protecting a little boy. And then you would show that same photo of the aggressive dog. 
and the way that people's brains reacted was completely different. It's mm. like they were looking at totally different images. Interesting. Two reactions to that. Uh, one is, of course, whether you control for the fact that you just have a very, very soothing voice. If I had been in a small dark room and heard Brian's voice, I'd be, whoa, I'd be scared. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, can you hear your version of a soothing this voice? This dog is protecting a kid. <laughs> Did you hear me? A kid. That's how I'd say it. Uh, I also love the fact that in psychology, you went in and said, reframing, there's not quite enough syllables in that. Let's go for cognitive reappraisal. Oh, screw That's you, kinda... Thomas Vilsberg. <laughs> like there aren't enough syllables in your name. <laughs> That's personal. I'm trying to find a cousin of mine to marry so I can go to quadruple Waddell. <laughs> Waddell, 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 Spark. Okay, I'm trying not to judge you for marrying your cousin. That's okay. But if you did marry someone with the same last name, I don't think you have to duplicate it. No, you don't. You just, maybe you could put a square on it. I think it's just the name. Yeah. Don't diss the idea of marrying your cousin. How do you think I got the double name in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> got it. Excellent. <laughs> this explains a lot. And totally legal in New York, by the way. So all good. And work for Jerry Lee Lewis. You um, mean Lewis Lewis. Jerry Lee Lewis Lewis. You know, it's interesting that there are some huge problems in the country right now that the same questions keep coming up. And that's why I think that we're we're chasing our tail with issues like homelessness and immigration. I actually think that's a great indicator that we're not asking the right question. No, of course, that's what I mean. Like, we're, yeah. we're not reframing. We're not, people are using it just as kind of more of a shield or like actually a sword in some cases to help their cause or help their, their backing financial or otherwise. Yeah. It's unfortunate that we're not asking the right question because it just proves that we're not really looking to solve these problems. Maybe, or maybe you just don't realize that there's a totally different way to look at it. How do you get good at reframing, Thomas? I, so I'm going to share a couple of different tips that we can discuss, but I think the observation you just made is spot on. One of the things I look for when I try to figure out if we need reframing or not is actually whether people keep saying the same things. Okay, so let's get into it. What are some of those tips that you have found through your work to actually help people reframe? What you want to do with the problem is, as one of the first steps, you want to describe it briefly, and then you want to share it with a couple of other people. This could be two friends of yours. It could be a colleague or two or something like that. And sharing the problem with them and asking them to challenge your thinking. Make it clear in that conversation, you're not here to, to moan or whine about a problem. You are here to say, hey, I have this problem. Can you help me think about it? Not necessarily try to solve it, Maybe mm. try to challenge my thinking on it. It's just we have massive blind spots, all of us. And one of the simplest ways of getting away from those blind spots is to involve other people in the conversation because they have different blind spots. And should these people be kind of detached from your normal way of thinking? In other words, like they don't believe the same things you believe or I kind of find that if you if you're talking to people who think like you and react like you, you might just be in echo problem. chamber. Yeah, that is very true. Generally, the rule is that the more important the problem is to solve, the more effort you should put into discussing with people that are different. Uh, so diversity is one of those magical ingredients in, in this. Uh, you're exactly right. If you talk to your the people who you're normally close to, well, they tend to see the world in the same way you do. Now there's a limit to it because let's say your problem is a little bit more specific around your industry and so on. You can get benefit from talking to somebody who's outside your industry, but the best ones to talk to is typically what the researcher called and Michael Tushman calls boundary spanners. And a boundary spanner is somebody who is part of your world, who understands your world, but who's also part of other world. An example might be somebody who works in your industry, but in, the, in a different company. Or flip that around, they work in your company, but in a different function. 
there is a point at which the distance becomes so great just for practical purposes it becomes difficult to even share the problem. This is why our friend yeah. who's in the medical field, whenever he asks Brian for advice, it never really ends well. <laughs> like he's like, hey, Brian, how should I wrap up this surgery? This is one of Brian's best and worst features. He you know is I'm right ready here, right? to give advice on any topic, regardless of how much information he has on that topic. I can help you with your tone. <laughs> If you need it. Example. I'm just saying, if you need it, I can help you with your tone. This makes me think of a kind of classic research on problem solving by Abraham Luchens, who found that when people have a history of having solved a particular problem successfully, that's one of the biggest dangers for them of having that fixedness, yeah. where they're like, I know how this works. I've done it a hundred times before. So in this case, I can also see the benefit of talking to someone who is in uh, an adjacent field or maybe even in your field, but newer at it. Maybe they'll have a totally yeah. different perspective. Yeah, I, I, I think there's an important corollary to that, which is you need to know what to listen for. Because if you go to somebody like that, they will rarely be capable of solving it for you if for exactly the reason that they're not close enough to the problem and so on. Right? You know, Brian is not enough of a heart surgeon to, to, be, to have solutions on that front. I think you would what? disagree with you on that. I them. think I would disagree with you on that. <laughs> Uh, well, there, there is a mental trick to it, and that is to make it clear in the group and to yourself that you're listening for input, not for solution. Because what typically happens when this works is the outsiders, they ask a question that makes the problem owner start to think different. I had this rule at work when I was working in ops and any of my employees would come to me with a problem. The rule was, if you come to me with a problem, come to me with three solutions. And they could be outlandish. Like one of the solutions could be, I need to get a unicorn that can play the flute. Just so long as your brain is thinking of other solutions. Was that solutions. one of the good solutions? That was or? one of the better ones. I keep using that. <laughs> I keep using the unicorn with the flute. And I feel like that's honestly, all Honestly, fixes everything. Fix that heart condition that you're talking about, <laughs> Thomas. So that was one of my things just to kind of get people thinking out of the box. And loosen and up a little bit. Oftentimes when I would go into companies as an ops manager, they would all have the same problems. You know, either their shrink was mm. too high, meaning their inventory results were too bad, disorganization, all kinds of things. They would come at this with new managers that wouldn't last because they were all asking the same questions, doing the same thing, getting the same result. Yeah. And uh, so when I would come in, it was always out of the box. It was always like thinking. Unicorns and, and flutes. Unicorns and flutes, baby. That's what it's all about. So uh, thinking out of the box, but also listening out of the box, right? So mm. Tanya and I have this problem. Whenever we come to each other with an issue, with a problem, the other one always wants to solve it. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I want to get better as a listener. Hmm. to better that uh, also makes me think the of right questions too your career hmm. in ops one of the things i always found really interesting about the work that brian has done in the operations space is that whenever a company would bring you in they'd bring you in because they were having problems mm -hmm. and hmm. then you would spend about a year arguing with them and trying to prove to them <laughs> that they had to do things differently yeah. so oftentimes, <laughs> even when you hire someone to give you an outside the box idea which yeah. always worked you always had tremendous yeah. results but it was constantly a battle, right? Yeah. And I would tell them at the interview, like, I don't do things the same way. Like, I'm not here to repeat what the last person did. I'm I'm really going to try some new things. I'm just imagining you coming in as kind of like, so first question, where do you keep your unicorns in your flu? <laughs> I really want to come back to the, the listening question. I, I'd love to hear your, <laughs> I'd love to listen yeah. to your thoughts on that. <laughs> but first, one thing that I just want to address before we move on yeah. is, Something that I think was really cool about what you did, Brian, is not only would you 
ask different questions and bring outside the box solutions, you would also kind of intentionally look different. Like <laughs> some of it intentional, some of it unintentional. Yeah. <laughs> but there's actually some really fun research. One study led by Catherine Phillips and team that found that groups perform better just thanks to the mere presence of visible diversity. Interesting. So, for example, that could be race, that could be gender, that could be your mohawk, that could be yeah. the fact that even though you worked in very high-end industries, you <laughs> refused to wear a suit. A world of suits, and I'd be there in t-shirt and jeans every day. And it was like that always told my staff I was ready to dig in. I was ready to to do whatever it took because I've worked with managers too that have like, this is what needs to be done. This is the problem. Good luck. I'm going to be ironing my tie or whatever. I don't know if you iron ties. I don't even, <laughs> that tells you how much I dress up. I don't know if people iron ties. I don't Thomas, know if that, you're from the business Yeah, world. You, you wear ties. I'm, I'm ironing my tie right now. <laughs> but I wonder if just showing up looking like you did mm -hmm. made people also yeah. think differently. The staff was not, not necessarily the management. I had some friction with people up top. So maybe let's, let's go back to the listening question, right? Because even in instances when we ask for solutions and people give them to us, mm. we might not be ready to receive them. Mm -hmm. Thomas, any insights on that? How do we actually become not just better question askers, but better problem listeners, problem listeners. Yeah. Well, that's my next book. <laughs> it's kind of, I think that that helps is both to like, first of all, so develop awareness of this, because I think you're spot on people listen for different things. Like for in this conversation, I mean, because you have a high energy podcast, I think all of us are kind of also listening for entertainment. We're kind of like, oh, here's an opportunity to make a funny remark. But everybody does that in conversations. You, you come in with a specific listening mindset and first of all, being aware of that. And then I think you can actually achieve a lot just by priming people in the conversation. So you kind of say, hey, I'm going to share something with you. And to be clear, this is, you know, what I'm looking for here is input or what I'm looking for is, you know, I just want to commiserate a little bit. Just let me vent. I love that. So, so that we can be better listeners, remind ourselves what we're listening for and so that we can help other people be better listeners, ask them <laughs> what yeah, kind of thing yeah, that we're actually looking yeah. for. What else you got, Thomas? Damn! What else you got, Thomas? All right. Um, uh, other ideas. <laughs> I, uh, I say one very powerful uh, technique is, uh, is looking for what's called bright spots. And bright spots is a, uh, the idea of going in and looking for positive exceptions. So whenever you have a problem, instead of focusing on all the times you have the problem, you kind of look to see if there's ever a case or an instance in which you actually didn't have the problem. And here, I think I'll toss it back to you because you're actually, in my new book, Watch Your Problem, chapter four, I believe, starts with a story about you and Brian. That's about the 10 o'clock rule. Could you share that? Uh, thank you. I feel very special. Very special. To be featured. The 10 o'clock rule is basically, we can't talk about anything serious after 10 p.m. Including this podcast. Including this podcast. So like, if we have an issue and we're like, okay, I want to talk about relationship. And we look and it's 9.58. We're like, hey, uh -uh. 10 o'clock, sorry, sucker, hold up, put a pin in it. it. It enables you to do two things, to avoid a big smash up, knockout, slobber knocker mm. of a fight and keep you up and make you more miserable the next day. But it also gives the person with the issue that's usually Tanya, hey. um, it gives them an opportunity to sit with that problem and kind of see what's important you know like ah. if, if you wake up in the morning and you're like all right where were we then you know it, it, it's a big deal but if you wake up and you're like all right maybe maybe i wasn't mad about this maybe i'm mad about that maybe maybe mm. it's, i'm not even mad maybe i'm hurt it gives you a chance to do that problem reframing 
so this was for sure a bright spot for us because one of the things that we found really fascinating early on in our relationship <laughs> is that sometimes we would fight about a particular topic, let's say finances. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we would have that same exact conversation and it was like this twilight zone reality mm -hmm. where we were the same people seemingly having the same conversation and we were fantastic. One of the biggest ones was socks for some reason. Like where where should the socks go? In the hamper, what? under the couch. Yeah, so okay. I was like, like yeah, wait, your socks. <laughs> Mostly my socks. Yeah. Um my I, socks, your finances. Because I'd find them in, in, in the cushions. I'd find them like it was just weird. It was like living with like a teenager or something. Like I'd find socks in the weirdest places. That was one of my problems. And then my problem was <laughs> eBay. <laughs> and I'd find eBay receipts in the weirdest places. <laughs> So anyway, we just realized, hey, instead of focusing on all the times that we're fighting about this, maybe we don't have an eBay problem. Maybe we don't have a sock problem. Maybe our problem is when we're having this conversation. And so we started noticing that sometimes we were quite good at resolving these same issues. And those times happen to be before 10 o'clock. Yeah. As we've gotten older, as we've gotten sleepier, it has since become more like nine o'clock. And we did realize we actually have a sock prop, but yeah. we're working on it. All the time. Still, still but we're not upset day. about it yeah, we're not upset about nine o'clock. <laughs> not only did that help us become better at problem solving in our relationship, I think it also <clears> trained us when we have a problem to actually default to the question, when doesn't this problem exist okay. or when is this problem not as bad yeah and i love that because i think that highlights that problem solving is a skill like you you can actually build a mental habit around whenever you run into problems wherever you wherever they arise you can develop these cognitive tricks of saying wait a second you know a let's just sleep on it b let's try to take a step back and see if this is really is this really about the socks or is it about something else that way you just gradually start to build a better problem literacy, if you will. And, you know, some of the advice we've been discussing here are examples of those, the reframing the problem, discussing it with others, looking for bright spots and so on. I think I'd add, add another one to that, which is around perspective taking. This is something I think you've discussed this on the podcast before. One of the fundamental things you try to do in a problematic situation, of course, is to take the other party's perspective and, and try to understand what's going on in their world. And yet we're not always so good at it. And so... I think it'd be interesting to discuss kind of what's actually holding us back from doing that better. In the modern world right now, the world we live in with kind of so much at stake with who we are socially, with social media and all that stuff, I think a lot of people have a hard time getting into other shoes because the possibility of being wrong right now, I don't know, it just seems... High stakes. High stakes for a lot of people. Like, I love being wrong. There's a movie that I love, and I know my, my best friend loves this movie too, and I gave him hell for it, but it's like one of my favorite movies of all time, Kinky Boots. One of the things that is said in that movie that I carry with me all the time is change your mind, change the world. Mm. I love being wrong for that reason, except when Tanya and I are arguing. I don't always, I don't always enjoy it, but I do enjoy the learning, right? So, Gee, for someone who loves being wrong, you don't admit to being no, wrong very I do, often. I do. It's, it's much easier now. As I've gotten older, yeah. it's much easier and much more fun to admit being wrong. I, I'm it, just thinking that it's helpful that you find you find it enjoyable since it happens so often. <laughs> Oh, you have no idea. Thomas, I'm wrong about six times in this podcast since we started this conversation. But no, I, I, I feel like it's a lot easier for me to get in people's perspectives right now. I almost wonder if when we have a really strong opinion, and especially when we have a really fixed identity, it's scary to take someone else's perspective mm -hmm. because there's the possibility that the things that we've said or done aren't as right as we've believed them to be. 
there's a concept in psychology called the backfire effect. Not in all cases, but especially when someone has very strong perspective, the more you mm. try to convince someone that you're right, the more they're going to yeah. feel Double down. fixed yeah. in their own perspective. And so we if I'm see trying it, to convince yeah. you like, vaccines are bad, vaccines are bad, by the end of the conversation, you're going to be like, vaccines are even better than I thought. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and we see that on social media, but I think you hit it right on the head our views, our schemas are now attached to our identities. Mm-hmm. It's to, not just what I think, it's who am I. It's who am I, especially right now. And again, it, I not blame it on social media, but I think it has a lot to do with, because all that stuff is there forever, forever. forever. So it's like you can't have as much freedom to have a fluid identity. Right, right. Because the minute you say something to contradict something you've said, that post is going to come right to your face. I mean, how often do we see any kind of leader say something and then someone posts something they said in 2017 and they're like, well, that ain't what you said. You know, for once I'd want these political leaders to just be like, you know what? I was wrong back then. Mm. And and now I have a different view or on things. Or just like, I thought that then. Yeah. New information presented itself. And, and I the, think a and different way now. And it happens with comedians and actors who post these things and then comes out later on down the road that it was racist. And instead of defending the tweet, instead of defending what they said, why not mm. just say, hey, I was wrong. That was dumb and, I, and I'm embarrassed, yeah. you know, or whatever. Well, so I believe it's uh, Cass Sunstein, who's uh, one of the authors of Nudge. He wrote a piece about this in the New York Times about some of the research. And the problem is a little bit, you often get penalized for admitting you're wrong. If you are in that very, very heated kind of environment where people are firing off barbs left and right, your best strategy on, on an isolated level is actually often to keep denying. The people that go in and say, hey, I'm really sorry, they don't always come out of it very well because often they, at that point, they have people who are so antagonistic to them that they use that excuse as ammunition. And then they start saying, this guy should lose his job. So there are some very difficult incentives, I feel. I I guess the call to action here is for all of us to be better allies for individuals that are willing to publicly change their minds or Mm -hmm. willing to apologize so that when you see those acts of courage, to really praise those and celebrate those. At my company, one of our interview questions has always been, what's one thing significant that you've changed your mind about? I think that's amazing. And it also highlights a way out of the problem partially. I think this is a very tough problem to solve for on a societal level with the political debate and so on, but you can solve it locally in your team. You have power to go in and create a little bit of a different culture around when people change their minds or doing as you do, you hire for it. The other thing I think you could do on a local level is kind of gamify perspective taking. I forgot what the technique is called, like the the multi-hat technique. Edward de Bono's six thinking hats. I figured you might know that. (laughs) So what are some of the hats, Thomas? black one is kind of the critical one. The red one is emotional, if I remember. There's kind of different, you know, lenses attached to it. I think you're right. Uh, gamifying it or creating some kind of structure around it, it can be helpful. It kind of is a way to gently force yourself and others to consider different perspectives. Going back to your point about diversity and input, this could also be a nudge to go, hey, I've been looking at my own perspective around this. I probably, no matter how many imaginary hats I put on, will never fully understand other people's perspectives. Let me go and ask questions and ask for input and feedback. Say I'm someone who's not used to asking for help and maybe I think I'm right all the time. Asking for a friend. No, 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 no. I really am. Just, this is like for any listener who, who is not quite used to asking for this type of help. Where do I begin? What's a safe way to start maybe with, before I even go to people? I think there are two perspectives on this. One is, of course, to try to find a slightly 
safer space to do it in. This might mean friends you trust, or it might mean strangers. They can paradoxically be safer to talk to, exactly because they're not part of your life. The other frame I put on that, though, is to say, get used to it being a little bit uncomfortable. By nature, developing in any capacity as a person, uh, developing new habits, is going to feel unsafe and unpleasant. And that's okay. That is part of it. The success criterion here is not that you feel perfectly safe all the time. It is that you develop. It's like kind of what you were saying, Brian, you're learning to love being wrong. It's like we have to yeah. rewire our brains to change what the reward system is. So if you feel uncomfortable, that means you're doing it right. I like that. So we've talked about problem framing and reframing, the power of diversity, the benefit of looking for bright spots, the importance of shifting your perspective. Can you give us one mm. more? That would be to always try to develop multiple options before you decide. And this comes from a researcher called Paul Knott, who has studied a lot of decision-making. Whenever you're facing a binary choice, you're probably going to get it wrong more often than if you come up with at least one other alternative to pursue. And so that might mean instead of saying, should I go study an MBA or not? That's a binary choice. That's not a very good way of thinking about it. A better way to ask the question is to say, well, if I were to do something the next year, what are some options in MBA is one? And to build a startup is another. A third is to change industry. A fourth is to remain in my current job, but maybe do things a little bit different. The second you define other options, you become capable of looking at your first choice in a more dispassionate, or more neutral way compared to if you just go either or. I think that's where reframing comes in as well. One important caveat is that your options have to be genuinely different. So in the slow elevator example that we started with, finding 15 different providers of new elevators, that's not 15 different options. That's 15 versions of the same solution. So the idea here is to try to go in whenever you can, try to develop multiple different paths forward before you choose which one to go down. Thomas, this makes me think of a case study that you shared with me a while back, the nightclub and how they solved their problem of the angry neighbors. <laughs> this is a classic example I use in my workshops when I teach reframing. I basically tell them that you're the owner of a nightclub and your neighbors are complaining about the noise. So, you know, your guests, when they leave the club, they stand outside on the street and they are flirting and fighting and noisy and, and the neighbors can't sleep. What most people do in that situation is kind of soon in on, again on one part of that problem. How do we make the guests less noisy? A better choice here is to think about the different framings of the problem. And so go in and say, okay, we can work on making the guests less noisy, or we can work on maybe make the neighbors happier or make them stop complaining. Or maybe we can work on getting permission to be noisy through the city or whatever it is. So the point is here, you have to go in and, and think whether I create multiple ways forward by looking for different framings of the problem. Okay, so Brian, yeah. if you were a nightclub owner mm -hmm. and your guests were noisy, let's practice what Thomas is teaching us about having different so options. So I need a little more information. As the owner, yeah. am I in bed with organized crime? <laughs> you can't kill the neighbors. That's what I'm asking. Thank you, Thomas. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's a roundabout way. I so want to be political. Okay, so it's off the table. So murder's off. Okay. And give us like three totally different options. Okay. Show us how it works. Uh, one thing I would do is make it 
bright ass AF when you come out of the club because people want nice and quiet. When I come out of the club, I'm looking good and blah, blah, blah. Mm. But when the light is on, I can see how sweaty ass I am because I've been dancing yeah. and maybe buying oh, drinks. So then everyone gets really embarrassed and just walks away. Another option is to have maybe instead of people exiting on the street, maybe there's a back way you can exit like through an alley or something. Not mm. a tunnel. Just keep everybody from filtering out into the main street. Yeah, or have like 12 like exits. Two. Okay, nice. That's away give from us the a thing. third completely totally different problem no floor so as soon as they come out of the club you remove all the sidewalk and floor and then they're like oh shit i gotta go back in the club and no one comes out i love the fact that brian's mind with zero delay just goes to no floor <laughs> i was in uh, i was inspired to come up with this exercise it's called the noisy nightclub problem because i read in the newspaper when i back when i lived in the uk that somebody had solved this by the very creative strategy of handing out the type of candy called gobstoppers oh and yeah I love breakers. Yeah. door breakers that's what they're called as well like literally as the guests were exiting the club you know they were handed a draw breaker and everybody's kind of a little bit hungry mm -hmm. so they stick it in their mouths and you can't actually speak as loud even just doing this exercise makes me think of an fmri study where they found that being in a good mood leads to more creative problem solving the happier you are the more playful you are the more silly you are yeah. the more likely you are to generate more ideas and separately research by mahai chiksamihai who you know i'm a big fan yeah. of yeah have a little bit of a scientist crush Science. on crush on Mahachik Samihai. You know now if you're listening, Mahai. And what he found is that the most productive creative people, they don't necessarily differentiate themselves in quality so much as quantity. The more ideas they generate, yeah. the more patents they put out, the more likely they are to actually find success with their creative work. So it's really about just options, 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 options. Very good point. And, and interestingly, Csikszentmihalyi is one of the key thinkers on reframing. Some of the research I described, the first empirical study of people's kind of problem discovery abilities is actually by Csikszentmihalyi, together with his kind of mentor and colleague, Jacob Gessels. I have no uh, feelings about Jacob yeah. Gessels. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll share just one other thing about problem solving that mm -hmm. I find really fascinating. It comes back to what you were saying earlier, Brian, about the 10 o'clock rule, mm -hmm. how sometimes we have to go to bed and not talk about the problem. It allows us to have more clarity about the problem mm -hmm. the next day. What you said about having options made me think of is the fact that ideally you don't want to put all those options out there on the table right away. There's actually research that suggests that marinating and having some time to sort of daydream and even procrastinate can lead mm -hmm. to better outcomes. So one way that researchers study insight or aha moments mm -hmm. is by doing this word association test. And I'm wondering if I could recreate it on you both right now. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to read to you three words and your job, both of you, mm -hmm. is to come up with a separate word that could be used in connection with each of those three words. So for example, if I say crab, pine, and sauce, a good association word would be apple <laughs> yes. because we've got crab apple, pineapple, and applesauce. So we'll do two of these. We'll just see. Okay. Let's just see how it goes. Ready? <laughs> Bump, step, egg. That's interesting. Case. No. <laughs> I step. Oh, step. Er. Er. Bumper, stepper, egger. Nope. I think you're wrong. <laughs> Head. Step head, bump head, egg head. <laughs> I'll read it one more time. I'll give you one more chance. Bump, step, <laughs> egg. Baby. Bump. Baby. Baby. Yeah, it's a baby. Bumps. Baby bump. Baby steps. Baby steps. 
What the hell is a baby egg? Baby egg is a, is a not a real not a big egg. Thomas Gunn. Yeah, exactly. Two two out of three in this conversation. Oh, sorry, <laughs> baby egg doesn't doesn't cut it. Okay, ready? Excellent. It's goose. Goosebumps. Goosebumps. <laughs> goose steps. Goose egg. egg. Okay, ready for yeah. one more? Yeah. Back. Uh huh. Clip. Wall. Paper. Ding ding ding. That was good. Oh. How'd you get paper? Paperback. Wallpaper. Paperclip. All right, you got it. Yeah. Okay, pretty good. Yeah, I, I thought that was so simple that I'd let my <laughs> assistant Brian answer for me. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice cover, Thomas. <laughs> Tom, Thomas okay. was like, I wanted to give Brian one. Because... <laughs> May I point out that this is not my first language? <laughs> me either, me either. I'm from Texas. Me Texas either. does not count as a language. You ain't and been Thomas, to Texas. And Thomas, you know some big ass words, my Yeah, friend. I've read your book. You've, re you've got some. I had to Google some of that shit. <laughs> Okay, so what's really fun about doing research using this word association test is that fMRI studies find that people who have insights versus people who logically try to do this, like they actually sit there and they're like, let me make a list of words. Let me try to pair the words. Let me see which mm -hmm. words make sense and which words don't make sense. Okay, big talk. Their brains actually function very differently. So when you try oh. to put too much logical effort into it, it actually overloads your prefrontal cortex and it reduces your information processing speed from other parts of the brain. So you actually want your brain kind of loose and Whoa. chilled out when you're doing creative problem solving. Research. One of the things I was just thinking about, y'all, before we uh, break up here, you know, problem solving is a scary word, mm. but maybe another way is to reframe what it's called and maybe call it challenge solving. Or you know? solution discovery. Solution discovery or something like that. Problem solving sometimes is a little scary because like if I'm invited to a table like of a bunch of eggheads or something and they're like, hey, we're all brought here for, you know, it's like the Avengers mm. all here for a different reason and we like all brought a different yeah we all brought a different thing to the table and uh, we have to solve this problem if i hear problem solve i'm like well maybe i won't say anything the I'll only solve. problem i see with Whoa, what you're suggesting nice. is that thomas went through all this effort no. to write a book <laughs> to publish it with harvard press that's not what i mean and it's called what's your problem it's not no. called what's your solution no 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 that's not what i meant i meant like if you're if you're a new jack, yeah. you need to start. Maybe you go easy on yourself and don't call it a problem. I love that. So, yeah. Thomas, yeah. maybe as as we wrap up, if you are brand new to problem solving, if it frustrates you, if you if it intimidates you, if you feel overwhelmed by the weight of the huge huge problems in our world right now, what's one small baby step that people can take to become <laughs> problem solvers or solution finders? I'd say in one word, you can panic. Just panic. It's like, <laughs> uh, no, I think you develop the ability to handle really big problems by getting practice on smaller problems. The advice I give to people is start discussing some of those small issues that you kind of face on occasion. Don't start with a big strategic issue. Start with sorting out things, as you mentioned, like small frictions in a relationship or something in the workplace that's kind of been bothering you a little bit and start building your problem-solving ability. And I add one more to that. There's a specific mental thing I do to kind of overcome what Brian is talking about. But sometimes when you're invited into a room and there are some impressive people there and you, do, you feel slightly imposterish, I tell myself that in the room I'm walking into, there isn't any space for my insecurity or my concerns or my ego, because all of that is about me. There's only space for trying to solve yeah, so number one is 
think about yourself as building the problem solving muscle. Mm -hmm. Number two, make it about the problem. Don't make it about yourself. Right. I like that. And Thomas, if people want to become better problem solvers and start building that muscle, that skill set, where can they follow your work? I'd say, first of all, just take a look at my new book. It's called, as mentioned, Watch Your Problem. It's out now from Harvard Business Press, and you can find it uh, wherever you buy books, like support your local bookstores if you can, or find it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. And secondly, there is some more information, and there are some free downloads on the book's website called howtoreframe.com, howtoreframe.com. Awesome. And speaking of problem solving, you can help us solve our problem of not having the whole world know about this <laughs> podcast yet by leaving us a review, sharing on social, sharing with your friends. And with that in mind, we'd like to thank you for listening to Talk Sight to Me. <laughs>